This message was recorded at Grace Bible Festival. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turned to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town, the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. There are occupational hazards to being the daughter of a pastor. I had forgotten something for my message to start my message off with, so I finally get my daughter Amy's attention, and I go like this to come help me. Uh -uh. (laughs) So then I get my attention to my daughter Lonnie. Uh Uh-uh. Well, the sister Kia saw that I was trying to get the attention of those two, so she goes, get up there, get up there. So then I went to Kia (laughs) and said, come up here. And so Kia, whether she did it out of duty or desire or whatever it was, was faithful and went and got what I needed because I needed this for my message this morning. So now she's bragging to her sisters that she was the faithful one. But there is something to the idea of obedience that, uh, that was just demonstrated here. Um, and I think we, 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 hopefully I'll be able to, I didn't expect this kind of an opening illustration. I, I hope that there will be something of this to see in what we encounter to these two connected stories uh, that we have about Jesus. Because that's why we're in the Gospels. We're in the Gospels because... I want you to see Jesus. I want to see it. But uh, I have here in my hand, um, my wife got this on sale yesterday, so I only got part of it. But I have a pound, and I weighed it. I mean, two. She's got one of these scales that gets down to the tenth of an ounce. I have exactly one pound of beef here, ground beef. It's not cooked yet. Now, how many times have you had a sermon open this way before, huh? <laughs> this is a kid's moment. So, there's a pound of ground beef. Now, how many of you like a good burger? I, 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 mean, I know there's one guy sitting out here right now who's not eating anything that has a face, but I'm not going to say who that is. But the thing, this, a burger is a good thing, and if you eat too much of this stuff, it's not a good thing, right? How many of you salt your burgers? All right. Would this much salt do? 
All right. I have here four ounces of salt. How much is how many ounces in a pound, kids? Eight. Who said eight? <laughs> we have failed in homeschooling. <laughs> Sixteen ounces, right? Would four ounces be enough to salt this burger? Would you be able to taste the salt? 25% of Americans say they have a born-again experience with Jesus. Should we be able to taste that in our country? Are we tasting it? I'm concerned we're not tasting it. And I want us to be a salty place. Not in the bad salt way. Not like the old sailor salt. I want us to taste have the taste of Jesus. And I want us to be that kind of people. Because certainly, if 25% of Americans say they believe in Jesus in a born-again way, we certainly should be able to see that. And if we, if we believe that we are Jesus' followers, certainly people should be able to taste that in us. In some ways. Again, that's why I believe that we are in the Gospels because I don't think there's any better way to get a taste of who Jesus is and then draw from that uh, what we're supposed to be like. Um, And I would say it this way. Normal kingdom living. Just to be normal kingdom living. And just, this is our life. This is the way we live. Uh, We are really, in some ways, no different um, when we are at our work than we are here. I had acute incidents brought to my attention this week by Kenny. Kenny's always got good stories. Um, He he had talked to a a guy this week, and this guy has professed to believing, and and, uh, Kenny was, I hope I'm not, I won't mention names. Kenny and I know who this is. And... uh, Kenny had called him one morning, and then they hung up, and before long, Kenny got a call back. It was one of those pocket dial deals, you know, when, when guys had their cell phones and they accidentally hit the button. Well, this, this guy who Kenny just talked to was exhibiting some amazing language. And I think Kenny actually eventually called him back, and the guys go, whoa, oh, I don't look at that as a bad thing in and of itself. I don't. I look at that as a blessing to this man, this young man. To say, oh, wait a minute. You can't be one person here and another person here. And that's what I want for us as well. I want you to have normal kingdom living in the Lord Jesus Christ that isn't any different here than it is wherever you go. I want, I want him to be present constantly wherever you're at. So, with that in mind, I want us to keep our Bibles open, if you still have them open, to Luke chapter 7, where we pick up this story. And it is not without cause that it's where it's at in the, in the Gospel of Luke. It is not without cause that uh, we have Luke, 
who set out to write a faithful account of Jesus to place this story here. There is, a, there is some chronology here. In other words, the event followed closely after the events that were before. We don't, the Gospels aren't totally devoid of a chronology, even though there's some differences in where places in the stories meet. There, it's not devoid of, 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 of chronology, you know, day one, day two, day three, that kind of thing. But at the same time, under the Holy Spirit's tutelage, or I don't know if that's the best word, underneath the Holy Spirit's guidance, Luke, making this account, put this story of the centurion where he did. So I want you, if you in my Bible, I have to actually flip back a page, but it's in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading. Verse 46, for those of you that have a a good knowledge of the scriptures, you know that this is familiar because it's somewhere else. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why am I your daddy? Why am I your daddy, Amy, and you won't come up here? Why am I your daddy, Lonnie, and you won't come up here? Picking on you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood occurred, the torment burst against that house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. And then Luke writes, when he had completed all his discourse, in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. It's not without purpose, I don't think, that this story of this centurion comes quickly after those last words. Now that was, that's part of Jesus, what's called Sermon on the Mount. Or ser- as our brother Krim said, I'd never heard it said this way, Sermon on the Mountain. It's because you're taking another language and putting it in English. Very accurate. So this centurion story has a connection, I believe, to what has come before. It has a connection, I believe, to our own lives in that um, our belief in Jesus must have salt to it. There must be some saltiness to it. There must be some taste to it. It's not bland. Our faith has, has a resonance to it that is... That there's, there's, there's taste to it. You can, you can sense it. Not only for ourselves, but I believe for others around us, but certainly for ourselves. So it says when he completed his discourse, and there's a connection here, and that discourse, Sermon on the Mountain, and we probably will get there late, probably next fall maybe, is how I'm kind of looking at it, if we do it, because I want to keep going with the stories of Jesus. But here we are. So... What does faith look like? I love to say that. What does faith look like? Because here we have an account of what Jesus said is great faith. So, I think we have something to see here. What does great faith look like? Well, obviously, it has something to do with action. Because we just saw that before. He who has my words and acts on them. And then he describes two people, one who hears and acts, and one who doesn't hear and doesn't act. Or does hear and doesn't act, I should say. So, the centurion's great faith. Uh, I would say this. 
there, there, there is within this, this great faith, and I think there's a connection between the two stories here, and it has to do with the idea of the recognition of authority. And so this centurion is called out by Jesus as one having great faith. And so what was it about the centurion's actions? Because there were actions here. Faith always has actions to it. Faith is not just an interior thing held with inside, not visible to yourself or to anybody else. That's not faith. Faith has action to it. Involvement, demonstration. I, I, it's very when you don't have enough salt on your burger, what do you do? Put some more on. There's a demonstrable action to to result and to see something, and so our faith is not supposed to be an interior thing only. Certainly, it is there. But it is to have this flavor that goes out. And that's what we see in this centurion here. So the story is, is basically, again, it says oh, he went back to Capernaum. He went back to Capernaum. This was Jesus' headquarters for his ministry. Capernaum. Not Nazareth. Capernaum. On the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. For his purposes, I think it was probably because he could, transportation was easy. You could either go by road or you, go by, you can go on a boat. And also because he's fulfilling prophecy. He knew that's where he was going to be. And so we find in the story in verse 2, the centurion slave was highly regarded by him and sick and about to die. Now, it's amazing because slaves back then were property, pure property. A a slave owner had every right to do with his slave whatever he wanted to do. Didn't do his work anymore, he he could kill him. Wouldn't be prosecuted, just kill him. Didn't have to feed him as much as, you know, the next guy. He could do whatever he want. But the centurion, and very likely not, we know that he's not a Jew. And he's stationed in a foreign country. And he has rights, lots of rights, as a centurion. He's over 100, 100 men, place of position authority. And he has household servants. But there's something about this young man, this, this young servant of his, um, that he, he loved him and uh, cared for him and wanted good things for him. And the servant wasn't in a good way right now. And he knew it. And he was about to lose him to that ultimate loss. He was about to lose him to death. And he didn't want to lose him. And verse 3 says, when he heard about Jesus. Now, I don't know how you couldn't have heard about Jesus. If, if, if Capernaum was headquarters for what Jesus had done, he's already done miracles there before. So I think the language carries more with the idea that he heard Jesus was back. Jesus is back in town. And uh, if ever I've had need of some of the things I've heard about him, now's the time. Very interesting, he doesn't go himself. And it also says something about, and this is, I want to catch the tension here. There's some tension we're going to see here because the centurion is, is, is a good guy. That's how he's painted. He's a good guy. In fact, when he, he says, I want to, Jesus, I want to see, Jesus needs to come and, and to my servant and heal him. He doesn't go himself. He actually goes to the community leaders, the Jewish leaders, 
and says, would you go to Jesus? So he sent some Jewish elders asking Jesus to come and save the life of his slave. Pretty simple request. Don't let him die. When they came to Jesus, these elders, they earnestly implored Jesus, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. It was he who built us our synagogue. So somehow this man had a, 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 an affection for the people of, that he was over, in authority over. He was probably under Herod Antipas, assigned by the Roman government to Herod Antipas, king of, king of Galilee, to keep the law. There And so he's head constable, you could say. He's the the sheriff in town. But he seems to have developed a heart for the people that he governs. And so the Jews recognize this. He's worthy to have you do this for him. Now, hear the tension there. He's worthy for you to heal his servant because he's a good guy. That was the reason the Jews brought to Jesus. But that's not the centurion's words. That was not his faith statement. I'm a good guy, Jesus. Come heal my servant. What do we, what do we see in him instead? Well, wonderful. The Lord just starts off. It says in verse 6, now he started on his way. It wasn't that far. Uh, Capernaum was a small town, probably could fit into the, we have about 14 acres here. The ancient town of Capernaum could probably fit pretty close into that 14 acres. I mean, everything was closely connected. They didn't have suburbs. Everything was closely connected. So Jesus is on his way. And it says this, uh, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So he found out, again, how the word, they didn't have cell phones, how this all worked, I don't know. But the fact is, is that word got out, Jesus is on his way. And he goes, oh boy, he can't come here. Wait a minute. You want your slave healed, but you're now saying Jesus can't come here. What's the deal? Read with me. Lord, do not trouble yourself further. <laughs> Imposition. Lord, you got, you got things to do. He's, this is a guy who knows he's got things to do. He's, he's, he's up, in, up, in, up in the upper echelon of the community. Got things to do. Don't trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. If there was anybody in the town of Capernaum who could demand his rights... It was this centurion. But he recognizes something. What does he recognize? We see it. We see it here in verse 8. Or end of verse 7. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. I I want us to wrap ourselves around that statement just a little bit. Just say the word. And he'll be healed. That is amazing. And we'll see the amazement that comes. But it's something about this man's faith that we see in verse 8. What does he recognize in Jesus? I also 
am a man placed under authority. Now, why can a policeman pull you over? Because he's a good guy? Why can a policeman pull you over and give you a ticket? Because he doesn't like you? Well, that may be part of it. My, again, my daughter Kia gets out of more tickets than the rest of our family combined, I think. Got a verbal warning yesterday. <laughs> yeah, things are getting better. We're getting closer to our first ticket. She has this, I'm sorry, officer. Um, not this man. This man, this centurion recognizes something here. He recognizes something similar between him and Jesus. Now, whether he fully recognizes when he says, Jesus, you have authority like I do, in some way, shape, and form, there's some type of authority that you have that's similar to the kind of authority I have. What's that look like? And he says, you tell Jesus that you just tell him to say the word and my servant will be healed because I'm, I, I'm in a place of authority. If I tell a, a soldier to go do something, he goes and does it. If I tell a soldier to come, he comes. If I tell a servant to do this, he does it. That's it. That's all, that's, that was his statement to Jesus. Go. And he goes. Come. He comes to my slave. Do this. And he does it. And look at the response of the Lord in verse 9. So again, remember, these are... These, you, you place the scene here. Jesus is coming, he's walking towards, and now he's greeted by a delegation, a second delegation that's come from the centurion. And there's conversation that takes place, and so there's actually just a repetition of what, what the centurion said, and these friends say this to Jesus. Jesus hears this, and he stops. And it, it's a wonderful word, he marveled at him. You know what marveling looks like in this place? This kind of thing? Wow. Did you hear that? Did you just hear that? I could just see him. Because what does he do? What's it say he does here? He marveled at him and he turned and said to the crowd that was following him. So Jesus is walking. The, the delegation is there. And they stop and hear these words. And the first thing Jesus does is goes, I have not heard such great faith in all of Israel. Actually, I'm paraphrasing a little bit out of, the, out of the account out of Matthew. So here is this Gentile who should not have all the benefits of the, of the, of the Jewish law and everything that was there for the people to see, to see God in his realness. And this Gentile recognizes something in Jesus, his authority. And that he was under authority. And all it was, all he had to do is speak, speak, and the, and the sickness would leave. And so again, Jesus says, I say to you, crowd, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. What's so great about this faith? Was it because he was a worthy guy? He was a good guy? Um, Obviously, the people around him thought he was a good guy. 
But that's not what Jesus responds to. He says, yeah, you're a good guy. You can have this one. This one's on the house. Being such a good guy, it's on the house. You know, I've gotten some of that. I've, I've gone to places. I've, I frequent the coffee shops around here. You know, I like coffee or whatever. And every once in a while, somebody goes, here, you can have this. But that's not what this is here. This is action on the centurion's part. This is faith in action. This is salty faith. A recognition that all it takes is a word from God and it's done. And all he did was request. Now, in the past, I would have made, and I think we can make something about his humility. We just sang, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. We sang that song a little bit earlier. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Absolutely imperative that we learn how to humble ourselves before God. And I could make a case, well, because he came in humility, you know, that this is, Jesus responded to him because of his humility and those kinds of things. But that's not what the statement says here. The thing that makes Jesus marvel is here is a man who just takes him at his word. And knows that the one who speaks and says, be healed, he doesn't even have to be present in the room to have it happen. He has that much authority. And so the faith, the action of the centurion, the saltiness of his faith was was just really, in a lot of ways, strictly the idea that he believed that Jesus could do this without even being present because of who he was. Now, in Matthew chapter 8 is the same account of this. It varies just a little bit, but the point I want to bring out is, is that in Luke's gospel, it's really much written to a Gentile audience. In Matthew's gospel, it's really written more towards a Jewish audience uh, as the major recipients. And in Matthew's account, Jesus marvels at a statement, Truly I say to you, I have not heard of such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, that he goes on in Matthew, says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, our faith needs to be salty, not just because we're not Christians because we belong to a church. We're not Christians because we belong to a denomination. We belong to somebody. King of kings and Lord of lords. And for us, that means living in normal kingdom mentality. Putting, you know, recognizing Jesus for who he is. And our faith is in what he says. And if, if he says that, then our faith's response in some way is something to do with the idea of doing. Faith always carries some doing in it. Again, if it's just this mental ascent, if it's just this interior belief, I don't believe that's, that's true faith. It's the faith that responds to the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus are the 
pronouncement of who he is and recognition and action upon him. Now, how does this connect to the next story? So the centurion's actions are like salt. It's a, um, he, he, he responds. Uh, I think he, it fits well in the narrative. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you what he is like. And so this centurion is a man who dug deep. And that deep, that digging deep was just this commitment that, Lord, you can do this, and you don't even have to be present to do this. And it was done for him. Well, Luke goes on in his storytelling here and the connection of the gospel, and he says, soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain. Uh, we don't know how long this was afterwards, obviously, but soon afterwards. And his disciples were going along with him, and you need to picture this again, accompanied by a large crowd. So by this time, anywhere Jesus went, there was a, a, a crowd that followed him. And we also know from the story that part of the crowd was a caravan of women who basically provided for the disciples' needs out of their own purses. Wealthy women who went along and made sure that things were taken care of. But there's a large crowd that follows him out of Capernaum, going to Nain. It's probably about maybe a 20-mile walk. Now, how many of you are going to do a 20-mile walk today? Must have started out early, and as they come to the city of Nain, they meet another crowd. And at the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of a mother. She was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. So crowd meets crowd. The front of the procession coming out of Capernaum is Jesus with his disciples. The front of the procession coming out of the city of Nain is a mother who can't stop crying. That's, that's, the ver- that's the way the verb says it. Weeping continuously. Over and over and over. She's heartbroken. Why is she so heartbroken? The story tells us. The only son of his mother and she was a widow. When he's dead, she's as good as dead. But she wasn't just grieving for herself. She was a mother. Grieving for her son. And this is beautiful. Verse 13. So two processions coming together. This is not a chance meeting. This is a purposeful meeting. Jesus sees it, but it's so, it's so simply stated that what really comes out of it is this, what next happens, in, what we see in verse 13. The Lord saw her, saw her, picked up on what was going on. The next word is beautiful. He had compassion on her. It's a word that means his literally, his innards went into turmoil for her. It's one of those funky Greek words, splunk. It's kind of one of those things that English speakers don't use very well. Splunk amanai, or something like that. It's got this you know, guttural language to it. But it really means the innards are moved. But how that comes out is the idea that it moved him in the deepest parts of him to want to, to, there's something that's going to come, that there's something that comes out of him to want to help. Compassion verses, do not weep. In other words, it's actually a command. It's actually stated that way. Don't weep. Stop. You are now weeping. Don't weep. But it wasn't said in sternness and strictness. Now stop weeping. 
You ever been to funerals where people try to say things to help comfort a family and you go, whoa, not good words. Here, he just says, stop weeping, and he immediately, immediately moves, and it's not a coffin like we would think of a coffin. It was probably a wicker basket, an open wicker basket, carried by some men out of the city, and he's elevated up a little bit, and he does something very unthinkable to the Pharisees. He touches a dead body. He literally touches the dead body, making himself ceremonially unclean. That's, that's just added into the story here a little bit. But here, now remember, I want you to look back in verse 8. Look in verse 8. I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. Another one, come, and he comes. To my slave, do, and he does it. Jesus' response to that is, this man has great faith. In verse 13, we see that authority in action. In verse 14 and 13. He said to the young man, I say to you, Arise. Is that a command? Yes, that's a command. I say to you, arise. What's the young man do? Verse 13. Or verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak. I think that's kind of funny. Um, maybe I shouldn't think it's funny. Maybe I've been watching too much Bubba Watson commercial or things. With, he won the Masters a couple weeks ago. He's kind of a funny guy. guy sits up and he starts talking right away now I, I don't know is that what dead people do when the first thing they do is start talking some of us know some people that are probably like that but I don't know I just I find it it's another one of those very simple things that fill the story there's no there's no Man, he did this, he did that, you know, it was just amazing, this light glowed from him, and he just, he looked so fresh, like he'd just been sleeping, that kind of stuff. He sits up and he starts talking. Well, that talking does immediately something. What's that do? That's my son. That's his voice. I can hear it. I can't fake that. Can't fake that. I read a commentary. Barclay's really, I love Barclay as far as some of his commentaries. But he's got one big stumbling stone in his commentaries. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. How can you, how can you, how can you have great commentaries and not believe in the resurrection? What we see here is we see the Lord of life and resurrection in action. By simple command, Jesus says to this young man, arise. The man has no choice. He comes. And he says, Jesus restores him, gave him back to his mother. Woohoo! Can you oh, I picture that scene. The beauty, the, the simple beauty of that scene. What kind of tears does she have now? Joy. And it's just like the Lord's compassion to do these kinds of things. This, if you look this word up, compassion, if you see this word, it's only used in the synoptic gospels, but it's always used in some ways of somebody going outside of themselves to help somebody else in a bad situation. It's used of the Good Samaritan. He had compassion 
for the man who's beat up on the side of the road there. Something came out of himself to go help. Again, brothers and sisters, if we are this, we need to be flavored strongly in our compassion towards people. God will give us opportunities to be compassionate, to reach out and to help people. They're always there. Will it draw faith out of us? Well, it says in the last part there that, uh, well, what would you do? Was there a few people around? Two, two large crowds come together. Dead man talks and is restored to his mother. Fear gripped them all. Phobos. You know, you know, we've got all these phobias. Well, this is kind of the same word. It's just the idea of this. Wow. Like my wife in thunderstorms. She can drive all the way across the continent, get almost all the way back home, and calls me from North Dakota because there's a thunderstorm. <gasps> thunderstorm. Same thing here. It's like there's a stopping. And they should. But then they, they, there's an automatic response that this is something outside the normal. They began glorifying God. And well, how did they glorify God? The statements are right there. They glorified God. They said, great prophet is among us. God has visited his people. Now, is that true statements about who Jesus was? He's more than a prophet. Again, the story is just telling us what happened. The people recognize something. There, there's no way to, like that one, com- Barclay's commentary where he skirted around and basically the kid was just kind of, he was in a, a, in a coma. He just happened to awake. Ah, Barclay, you do such a good job until you get to these places. I don't want us to be like Barclay. Now, he's dead. I want to pick on him. But I want us to believe Jesus Christ and his word. Now, are we going to go out raising the dead? You know, this is always the thing that comes up. Let's go raise dead then. John Wimber, he's been a controversial figure. But when he came to Jesus, he, he, he truly came to him. And he went to a church, and, and it was an old conservative fundamentalist church. And he's kind of a hippie, and he comes to this church, and and he sits through his faith. He, sit, he was told by the guy that led him to the Lord he needs to go to church. So he went to church. And when the church service was all over, he uh, kind of hung around back and says, well, when's the good stuff start happening? Good stuff. Yeah, like healing people and raising the dead. And they laughed at him. You know, scorned him, basically. This is one of the tensions that I have in coming to stories like this when we deal with, with, when we deal with the Lord in this way. Is he calling us to raise dead people? I don't think so. Can dead people be raised today in the same way? I think so. Is it up to us? I don't think so. We are, we are in a place where we are in a place of obedience to him. And I believe these things happen for his purposes, for his glory and not ours. Can you imagine what a church would be like if they true, you know, people were always raised from the dead at their church? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, did everybody believe? No. 
It actually confirms some people more in their unbelief than their belief. See, the key, the key is inside your heart and your response to the name of Jesus Christ and who he is. And I'll just, I need to close, I want to close here just by reading some, another gospel account, written a little bit differently, John's gospel. John chapter 5, it says this, Therefore Jesus answered in saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So then it goes on, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Same word. Jesus marveled at the great faith of the, of the centurion. And they're saying that we, disciples, should marvel at what God does. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Whom he wishes. For not just the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who who sent him. And then this wonderful, wonderful statement. Again, one of the amen statements of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. If there's something for you to hold on to, it's that. To believe, to have that foundation, to, to dig, to have a foundation that no matter what comes along in life, and we know today five people perished in Oklahoma from a tornado. No matter what comes along in life, what kind of a foundation do you have? If you've got, if you, if you have the foundation of, of taking Jesus Christ at his word, that's digging deep. That's digging deep. But that digging deep isn't just a mental thing. It's actually, there's some, there's some faith actions and steps that we take of trusting him. And that trust and that faith looks like something. It's salty. It has obedience in it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but pass out death into life. Now, how... How would you do living life without any fear whatsoever? Pretty hard, isn't it? Pretty hard to imagine that. I think we're supposed to fear. Fear and faith go hand in hand. But the fear is not of the circumstances and the things that could happen to us here, not to view things here. The fear that we have is that we miss him and don't, put him in his proper place in our lives. And instead, we, that kind of fear then says, oh Lord, I want to see your hand at work in me. I want, to, I want people to see that. And that kind of desire for God then translates into action of faith here in what we're supposed to do. You will have a chance this week to be afraid. What are you going to be afraid of? You have a chance this week of practicing faith in Jesus Christ. What will that look like? I don't know what your circumstances. All I can say is that normal kingdom living in Jesus Christ is not, it's not, it's not Disneyland. It's Washburn. It's Ashland. 
That's where we live. And that's where we're supposed to practice our faith. And our faith can really look cool here. We don't have to go somewhere else to practice our faith. It's here. For us. He's for us. Father, again, these people have been patient with me to bring the word. I pray that there's benefit to them this day from it, myself included, uh, that we may be salty people, Lord, that we may truly have the flavor of Jesus Christ in our lives. May we honor him by by obeying him. And in that obedience, we find not a servile fear, but a sheer joy of, of, of walking with him. Grant this to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.